Hello, and welcome to the 15th episode of the LI Law Podcast. I am your host, Zahava Schechter. The premise of this podcast is to feature issues, developments, and topics affecting the law and how it relates to the 8 million of us who live or work on Long Island, New York, which includes Nassau, Suffolk, Queens, and Kings Counties. If you live or work on Long Island, this podcast on local and state legislative and judicial decisions is for you. Our guest on this 15th episode is DeMar Tyson, publisher of the Urban Life News Magazine and licensed barber in Baldwin, New York, who was formerly incarcerated in the Nassau County Jail, as well as upstate and federal prisons. Please check out the show notes for a full description of DeMar Tyson's background, credentials, and contact information. If you have not yet read the show notes, you may want to pause the recording and read them first before listening to the episode. Please keep in mind that we will not be providing legal advice to any specific questions. Damar, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So please tell our listeners about your background and how you first became involved with the correctional system. First, I want to thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, just to get right into it, my beginning, my genesis into the criminal justice system began in 1991, which was my first incarceration at the time, I was 16 years old, living in what is called Buffalo Projects or housing complex in Freeport, New York, which at the time was one of the, for the lack of a better description, in terms of quality of life and violence and just a very rough type of living, was one of the worst housing projects in Nassau County, in the whole of Long Island at the time, comparative to some spaces and places in Brooklyn, the city, or in Hempstead, which is Terrace Avenue. So it was a pretty rough environment. Uh, On the outside, it might have looked just like a normal housing complex, but there was an aspect, a way of life that was taking place in there, which was deeply entrenched in the street culture. A lot of drugs were being sold, a lot of violence was going on. I caught an armed robbery charge at the time, uh, hanging with some friends of mine. We were drinking, which if you think about it, we were actually too young to be drinking, but that's the sort of living and, you know, the sort of things that took place at that time. You know, a young guy making some poor choices. And so to make a long story short, one night we went out drinking and driving and a dare turned into an actual robbery. So that wasn't anticipated that you were going out to commit a robbery? Not necessarily, but the truth of the matter is that I was open to possibilities because I was mischievous at the time, searching for my identity, trying to find my way in the world. Okay, so that was your first foray into the criminal justice system. What happened during your trial, or did you go to trial? Well, no. I was ultimately sentenced to an attempted armed robbery. They broke it down to a lesser charge, but I still managed to get sent upstate. At 16 for my first infraction. Yes, I plead, and they gave me a one to three. Why did you plead instead of going to, meaning why did you admit to whatever charge the the attempted? I got caught red-handed, kind of, sort of. It was BB guns, so you can see that I was still a child. It was BB guns, and I, I got caught, and it didn't make sense at that time to go to trial for something that I did. Okay, so where did you go upstate? First, we went to Nassau County. I stayed in Nassau County Jail for about almost a year. Is that in East Meadow? In uh, yes, in East Avenue? Meadow, 100 Carmen Avenue. Yep. Went to the juvenile portion of the jail at that time, which is separated from the adults. In Nassau County, I believe at 19, you become an adult. So you go to an adult housing situation. And they sent me upstate 
to upstate correctional facility downstate which is a processing place for the whole state of new york and from there they sent me to a jail called camp georgetown which was a minimum correctional facility at the time can you tell us a little bit about the processing center which processed you at the age of 16 what was your experience there much like slavery brand new you've never been through that before until you've gone through it they completely strip you of everything it's an introduction into a new system of thinking doing there's new rules that will be implied and at that time the correctional staff there would use extreme violence to make sure that they maintain order because you you have to realize and this is not to talk bad about the system this is just giving you the truth according to my experiences i have respect for all these agencies now that i've evolved and matured and became an adult and i look at the world a certain way but true downstate correctional facility is the number one housing reception area to the upstate jails meaning that when you do a significant amount of time i believe a year or more when you sentenced to like state time you have to go through there it's a processing unit and there you get stripped of all your clothes you have to shave all the hair off your face if you're not under religious designation you have to cut your hair off your head off your private parts this goes for women as well all your street clothes are thrown in the garbage or you have the choice to send it home Mm. You cannot bring anything with you but legal work and or Bible or Quran or some religious book. How long is a person in the processing center before being sent to, to their respective jail, jail after, they've, yeah. after they've been classified medium, max, or minimum? They're usually there on average 21 days. And after you spent one year upstate, what happened then? Well, it turned out to be 13 months and five days. Uh, I had been approved for work release, but during the time of my approval, they actually shut work release down. So we got sent to another facility, Fishkill uh, Correctional Facility. I was 16, yes, and I turned 17. I got released at the age of 17. So when you were released into general population, was that with older men? Yes, it's it's all in upstate New York. Uh, correctional facilities is is only no adolescent jails. At oh. 16 years old, you can be with grown-ups. Oh, so the distinction between juvenile detention or jail and adult detention is only in Nassau County, you're saying? But upstate, there is no distinction? No, uh, it is a distinction. Um, if you're sentenced to a juvenile jail, it stops at 15. Oh. Unless you have an ongoing case. And while you the case may start at 15 you can very well turn 16 or 17 and it's up to the discretion of the sentencing judge or the district attorney on how they want to process you because there may be some 17 and 18 year olds in juvenile facilities that's not a part of the new york state department of corrections very but if you happen to be sentenced at the age of 16 you will be tried as an adult and you will be sent to an adult prison Okay, so let's talk about, you've had three further incarcerations. What were the charges in those? So when I was released at the age of 17, I came home, and instead of working on rehabilitation, I was working on committing my next crime because that's the drawback of being sent to a prison with grown men and different people from all walks of life. You are somehow fascinated with the stories of a better way to do what you thought you were doing correct. And so while you're there for rehabilitation, you the environment does something different to you. So I was released 
and um, I got caught for stealing a hat, which was something petty because I had money in my pocket. See, my mind was at this time I was still polluted. Mm. So I caught a parole violation, and I mm. went back to jail for six months. For stealing a hat. Well, I didn't get violated for stealing the hat, but I went to parole to report, and I had six bags of marijuana in my pocket. So I was trying. I still thought that I was slick. Wait, are, when you report to parole, are you patted down? Do they check what you have on your body? They can. It's random. They can do that. Once and did you, they? In no, your case? no, no, they didn't. And I was actually finishing my report. But it just goes to show you that you can't play with the universe. I was going to finish my report. She said, okay, Mr. Tyson, I'll see you later. So I shook her hand. I said, okay, her name was Miss Craig. As I went into my pocket to put my shades on because I thought I was super cool. It was the summertime. I believe it was around June 10th or 11th, the marijuana dropped out of my pocket. She said, what's that? I put my foot on it. I said, nothing. <laughs> so now the reality of what I've done came crashing down on me. Now I'm sorry, but it's too late. Wow. So you went back upstate for another six months. For another six months. This time I went to Washington Correctional Facility, which was a supremely wild adolescent jail. 70% adolescents, 30% adults to balance out the violence in the population. Now this was a jail much different than the first jail that I went to. The first jail I went to was a camp. This was a medium uh, facility, a medium security facility. The violence was much different. All right, can I ask, why were you sent to a medium facility if your crime was not a violent uh, felony? Sometimes you don't know the answer to why you get sent to a particular jail. That's up to okay. housing. That's up to Albany. Okay. But uh, they sent adolescents wherever adolescents are at the time. So at the time that I was there, it was Green Correctional Facility and Washington Correctional Facility. Those are the two main adolescent facilities. So tell us when you were released from there, what happened after that? Did okay, I was released on work release in 1992. Came home. I was still kind of undecided about which way I wanted to go with my life. Uh, I, I worked little jobs here and there, and I began to dabble in street life again. What does that mean, street life? Does that mean drugs? Does that selling mean drugs, Selling drugs, doing petty robberies, doing whatever it was at the time I felt I needed to do to make a dollar. And, and you were 18 years old. I was 17. Still 17. Still okay. 17 because I only did six months, which is you do four months off of six. Two-thirds of the time. Yes. Okay, so what happened then? I caught a real robbery charge. I graduated from BB guns to real guns. Mm -hmm. I had somewhat of a, developed a reputation in the streets for taking no nonsense. Wait, how did you get a gun? I bought it. I saved up my little money from hearing the odd, odd jobs. Who'd you buy it from? Um, someone in the neighborhood at the time. So it was a private sale? Yes, private sale. You didn't have to undergo a background check? None of, none of that. You I didn't mean, have I to register either? No. Um, you, we're talking about in, 19, in the 1990s. Uh, guns were readily available in different neighborhoods if you knew somebody and you could get your hands on the gun. Okay, so here, did you plead again or did you go to trial? This time I went to trial. Who represented you, by the way? Private William attorney? William Ross, 18B. 18B, okay. So wait, that is a private attorney who is paid by the state. The state, they do some pro bono to work. To do some pro bono work. Well, actually, they get paid, but, well, but less, uh, less of a fee. Okay, yes. fair enough. And what happened at that trial? I was a kid thinking that I knew what was going on. When I should have took a plea bargain because I did the robbery. Did the attorney suggest that you take a plea? I'm pretty sure he did. But I was stubborn at the time. And I thought because I began to read a little bit of books, now my evolution began to take place. And I thought I was somewhat intelligent. So I thought that because they didn't have the weapon, that they could not convict me of 
armed robbery. But they convicted me ultimately of armed robbery in the second degree where you don't actually need the gun. Because mm-hmm. there's one of deciding fact, yeah, one of the elements or the deciding factors of what makes a gun a second degree robbery. It says what appears to be a shotgun, rifle, handgun, knife, etc. So it doesn't actually have to be. It just ha- it has to, be, to appear. Yeah, to but be. you need a cooperating witness, and he showed up. And he showed up. Okay. So how? Where did you go, and for how long? Well, I went. I was in Nassau County Jail at the time for two years, awaiting trial to pretrial services. Uh, I went to trial. I testified on my own behalf, and I blew trial. That was one of the last times I seen my mother alive because when I look back, she was crying like a baby, and then I realized that I messed up. Then I realized that what did I do? And where did you go from there? You they went upstate? sentenced me to uh, 8 to 16 years. Upstate? Yes, to upstate correctional facilities. And what happened after that release? Because well, that was your third incarceration. Okay, I grew up. I grew up. I was I was 19, and I grew up in prison. Wait, so you're 19, and you have three convictions be, behind you? Two convictions, one violation. One violation, okay. So ultimately, I was 19, and I came home from that term of incarceration at the age of 30. Yes, during that term of incarceration is when I fell in love with books and presenting and speaking, and I joined self-help programs, and I began to give back, and I learned somewhat of what my power and my potential could be. And what happened in the jail? Were there certain programs or people or mentors who affected you? Programs in prison are mandatory. Work in prison, in New York State prison, is mandatory. Do you mean work like working in a kitchen? Everybody has a job, yes. Everyone has a job. Everybody has a job, whether it be the kitchen, whether it be lawns and grounds, whether it be maintenance, whether it be in the hospital area, whether it be in the uniform, which is called the state shop, whether it's raking leaves or shoving snow, every inmate has has to either go to school or work and how much do you get paid 16 cents every job gets 16 cents when i was there was 16 cents an hour the the good jobs are 25 cents the very few great jobs are 50 cents and what was your job school and a program okay what was the program a drug program like a rehabilitation program yes it's mandatory most most people who enter the new york state prison system have to either take a mandatory drug and alcohol or substance abuse program or a violence program which is called ART. Okay so I want to ask you because you had mentioned involvement with drugs you said selling drugs were you also using at that point? No. Did you ever use? No I smoked a little marijuana but it wasn't my thing. While you were in this third incarceration. Second Oh, well, yes. Including the parole violation. Were there any mentors or people who... Many mentors. Many men along the way that had aspects of their character that I wanted for myself because I didn't get them when I was a young man growing up without a dad. These were other inmates. These were other inmates who carried themselves in such a profound way that I was blown away that this guy who was in there for maybe a murder or something uh, of significant violence, he was conducting classes and groups and these men were the charismatic, most charismatic, humble, but yet most powerful men that I've ever met in my life. And okay. it's a shame that some of them will never be coming home. Let's move on to you do get out, come back at age 30. What happens then? Well, at this time, I begin uh, my training as a personal trainer because I had to develop also a love for fitness. You know, I was in excellent shape. Is that in the last incarceration you began when to become interested? When I came home from the 11 years, mm-hmm. uh, I got a job at the Personal Training Institute over there in Melville. And I started training. 
and I learned they taught me how to train and I went from there to Bally's Fitness to New York Sports Club Dolphin Fitness then I ultimately opened my own personal training studio in Freeport called Level Fitness but while I'm pursuing a career in personal training I'm still maintaining a, a, a nightlife a street life Okay. Because now, at this time, I'm not just a kid doing petty crimes. I'm thinking that I was intelligent enough to navigate my way through the criminal system. Okay, I want to come back to this nightlife and what happens that leads to a fourth incarceration. But first, I want to ask you, it sounds like you had a number of jobs and you were successful in your, in your day work. Did you have trouble finding employment after leaving incarceration? To be honest, I've never had problems with employment. Is that usual? Because I read a lot about people who come out of jail and they can't get a job. And that's true as well. Okay. I believe uh, in large part, it's up to how you spend your time incarcerated because you can only be who you are. Mm-hmm. And if at you, this point, were you also a barber or we haven't gotten to that yes, yet? No, yes, I started cutting hair at the age of 13. So I was always a barber and prison just gave me an opportunity to develop my craft because there's clippers involved in there and the inmates are the barbers inside prison. So there's enough. Uh, <laughs> so wait, were you getting paid the 16 cents an hour for the barber work? No, no. Or that's additional. No, pay? they allow in New York State they allow you to buy your own clippers and trimmers. Okay. And they allow you to trim up the next guy, give them haircuts. There's also a barber program there as well, but I didn't work in the barber program. I just cut in the housing block, usually in the back of the dormitory or in the bathroom area. And so over the years, in and out of prison, I got better and better at cutting hair. And you were paid privately by, yes. by the people. Yes, you okay. know, a, a soap, a pack of cigarettes, these things are money inside prison because you always need toothpaste, deodorant, snack cakes. That's how you pay for services. So now let's come back to the active nightlife while you were acting as a personal trainer. What happened that you ended up going back to prison? I got caught eventually with um, unlicensed guns. The guns weren't necessarily for crime because at this time now I'm a business owner. I still have a past life connected to the streets. So my mind said at that time was I'd rather be caught with my gun than without it. See, because while I changed my life, the people who I may have encountered in the past hasn't changed theirs. So wait, were you carrying guns to protect yourself? To protect myself and I was open to getting money alternatively from different ways. But you did go back upstate for a fourth incarceration. How long were you there? It started out as a state charge. I bailed out, but then the feds picked it up. What does that mean, bailed out? I posted bail, and I got released out of prison from the last gun charge. While out on prison, the feds picked up the gun case. Why is that? I'm not particularly sure, but the charge was felon in possession of a weapon in interstate commerce. The guns came from another state, so they, they crossed state line. They picked it up. And this was a nightmare. The nightmare began all over. So how long were you in prison? At that point, you were in federal prison then. I was out on bail. Then they indicted me on the gun charges, and I had to turn myself in. I thought the sentencing system, the time system, the laws were the same as the state system. So I said, okay, this is gun charges. I can handle this. This is not a robbery. I'm going to see some light of day. Then they told me that my possible time range is zero to 10 years all over again. Now I'm sick. Sick physically? Yes. Physically, mentally, spiritually, because I messed up. I had a personal training business that I navigated my way 
through step by step from and training. You worked, you worked hard to develop yes. a, a clientele. Yes. And a, a, a reputation. Yes. And you were about to lose it all. At this time, I began speaking to the kids about gun violence. It's an oxymoron, but I was, you know, I was teaching kids. I was going into the schools. I, I had begun to give back. You were giving back, but at that point you were picked up on this federal charge. Yes. And then you went to federal prison? Yes. For how long? 52 months. They don't sentence you to years in the feds. They sentence you to months, which is years, but that's just how they do it. Okay. So it was 52 months, which turned out to be four years and four months. Of that time, I served three and a half years plus six months aftercare when I was released in a federal halfway house. A halfway house is much like work release. It's a go-between prison and reacclimating yourself back into society where you begin to get a job, you begin to look for a home, and to get yourself established. So this fourth inc incarceration was your last incarceration, yes. correct? Okay, great. So let's go back a little bit to the various uh, prisons you've been in and jails. We see a lot in the news about, I'm going to reference Nassau County Jail, but I'm sure it it relates upstate as well. Overcrowding, plagued by allegations of understaffing, corruption, drugs, mental illness. What is your experience in the jails in terms of how to make it through, how to survive? Respect. Can you explain that? Respect is the foundation to survival in prison. You have to carry yourself in a certain way that commands respect from the other inmates. Prison life is much different than life in free society because for the lack of a better way to explain it, we have to understand that everybody in prison is either tough, they broke the law, some people committed murders, some people committed rape, fraud, etc. All crimes. And so this represents a certain mindset of the prisoner. All these men and women live outside the law and the way that they tend to solve problems are with violence. Violence it's against each other. Against each other because there's not a lot of logic and reason. And it might sound harsh to people who are incarcerated. It might sound like I'm betraying a trust and a confidence as being formally incarcerated, but it's the truth. I have a question though. When you talk about respect among inmates, do you also have to have respect toward the corrections officers? Or what oh, is your oh, relationship oh, yeah. with them? Well, it's limited because they're just there to monitor. They're in the dorm at their post, at their desk, and they kind of live there with you, but they're doing their own thing. So, Do they carry guns? No. Okay. Yeah, no guns inside the facility. Because think about a, an officer coming to in the dormitory area or cell area with a gun on. And some of the inmates are strong, right? Some of the prisoners are strong. And just think about that some what about somebody that's facing five life sentences and here you come in with a gun they have nothing to lose nothing so to lose. no guns in the facility so respect among the officers inmates. i'm sorry yeah. but the officers are the gatekeepers right they're the keepers of order they go in and out of jail it's their house so to speak do it's they best. do they have control over what you do during the day meaning do you have to be extra nice to them or they prevent you from coming out of the cell do they have that kind of power yes or they no? do they hold the keys to the jail you're at, you're at complete mercy of whatever facility that you're in, mm -hmm. meaning that they control when you come out your cell and when you go back into your cell. Mm -hmm. If you do something and there's an infraction, you have to serve what is called a keep lock. You get locked in your cell for three to 30 days or more. And that is totally at the discretion of the corrections officer? At, after a ticket hearing. A penalty. So you, so you do have some due process. You do go before some kind of board before you are isolated. 
Is that yes, what you're absolutely. Inter-prison so, disciplinary system. Okay, so how do you keep safe in a jail? Respect. You got to carry yourself a certain way. There's some do's and there's some don'ts in prison life. Just to give you an example, one of the do's is don't borrow something from someone that you can't afford to pay back. For instance, you need to borrow soap to wash because you ran out of soap until the next commissary come which is the uh, prison store system right because the jail give it to you but they give you just the basics if you want dove Irish spring right you want good quality soap and deodorant you have to buy that well can your family send it to you no they can send you money in Nassau County Jail upstate oh. they can send you care packages okay. of soap deodorant food clothing products because now you're living your life you have to survive but in Nassau County you have a uniform and the only thing they can send you in that particular jail is underclothes socks underwear t-shirt sweatshirt thermal okay. and it has to be a certain color and money money doesn't come into your pocket it goes into like your checking account oh, your I inmate see. So checking you account get, you never get money no it goes into your inmate checking account. Okay, so what if I need soap and I can't afford it right now because I don't have any money? What is expected of me in terms of payment? Might charge you two cereals. So it's a barter system. Yes. And if you don't pay, is that where violence comes Depend in? Depending on the person you borrowed from. A petty person is going to try to manipulate and take advantage. Where's my soap at? You don't got my soap? I told you don't take my soap. I told you don't take my cake. I told you don't borrow this juice from me if you couldn't pay it back. Now, when next commissary come, you're going to have to give me two. How about a sexual molestation between inmates? Did you see that? Back Did in you? the days that used to take place. Back in the days means the early 90s, 80s, 70s. The population was different. Doing time was much different. Uh, I didn't see a lot of incidents of uh, 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 rape uh -huh. and uh, sexual abuse. But, of course, it was widespread back then, but times has changed now. And uh, in that regard, inmates band together. Uh, there's still incidents of rape and sexual abuse. And this is going to sound terrible and insensitive, insensitive and it's going to go against my, my training. But guys who are, are raped and, and taken advantage of in jail don't call it upon themselves, but they are hanging around people and getting involved in situations that, they should not. But isn't that just blaming a victim for lack of, a, of control over his own life? In some regards, yes. But in, in a higher sense of responsibility, to give you an example of what I mean, if you are not gay or bisexual, why would you borrow a cigarette from them? And, and the trick that they use to test you is to give you the cigarette that they've been smoking on. So you really so need if to you be very smart. Yes. You need, you need to know with whom you're dealing. Yes, but in order to know with whom you're dealing, you got to know yourself. I'm not hanging around gay guys if I'm not gay. I'm not borrowing a cigarette from someone who may have performed oral sex on another man. I'm not, unless I'm, a, I'm with that. But how do you know? You have to pay attention. In prison, you learn by default. Oftentimes, you learn by making a mistake first. Mm -hmm. And then either another inmate will correct you okay. or the staff will correct you. But you will learn. But the staff will tell you. For the most part, usually after you make a mistake. But this is why I'm not blaming the victim. And I want to be clear to those who may be listening. I'm not blaming the victim. But I am blaming a grown-up for not being aware of their environment. So we hear stories about inmates who work with prison guards to deal drugs. We also hear about inmates who use drugs for the first time while incarcerated. Or instead of getting rehab while they're incarcerated, their addiction becomes worse. So this may sound kind of naive, but how do drugs, which are contraband, 
get into the prisons? And is there a way to stop it? You will never stop drugs from getting into the prison. You're never going to stop it. Although how drugs get into the facility, you can probably read the New York Times or some other credible source of news. And you can see some more uh, news stories on how drugs get into prisons. But for the sake of my respect for the culture, I don't want to betray the cold and give information about something that may be presently going on because it's not my business. And while I don't believe that it should be going on, I still have to respect a certain way of life because I still serve that population. Just for instance, okay, I'll give you an example. There are situations where officers were bringing the money, the uh, drugs into the jail, and they were making a significant amount of money from it. There were some situations where some women were convicted of uh, drug possession or promoting prison contraband by bringing drugs to the inmate via the visiting room. Yeah, we didn't talk about visiting. I so there's different that. ways that drugs enter the prison. When someone comes to visit someone who's incarcerated, aren't they checked, patted down? Absolutely. So how how can drugs get through that way? I'm not sure. I've never received drugs while I was in prison. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I'm just I'm just interested in how it happens. I, I want to ask another question. Well, sometimes they kiss yeah. their boyfriend. So they have in their mouth. Okay. I want to ask you another question I touched on before about mental illness. While you were incarcerated, did you see other people who... Who were that's, there basically? that's where they at. That's where they at. You, we have to keep in mind, historically, if I recall correctly, uh, Mr. Giuliani closed down a lot of the psychological institutions. Where are those men and women going to go? Because mental health is connected to crime. So did you see a lot of other inmates who were suffering from mental yes. disease? Yes. They, this medication is big in the institutions. You should see at nighttime and in the morning time when they call on the meds, which is a medication call, there's a line around the dorm. Are we talking about medication for depression? Medication for... Uh, From A to Z. Schizophrenia, depression, any other sort of mental health. Is there therapy or counseling available in jail? Upstate there is, not in not in the city and county jails. And if it is, it's in limited amounts. Okay. So, for example, for the two years you were sitting and waiting for trial in Nassau County Jail, there's no therapy av available to I don't you. recall. I don't, don't believe. Recall. I don't believe okay. so, no. All They're right. treated unfairly. I'm going to be honest. Some of those guys with mental health issues shouldn't be in prison. They shouldn't be in prison. They should be in the facility where they can get help for their mental illness. And if they don't receive help, they're going to act out. So now you've been incarcerated four times and you are out. What did you do? How did you change your life and turn it around to where you are today? During my last term of incarceration, I believe I experienced what's called the paradigm shift. I had had enough. I had reached my personal bottom. I, I, I did not want to be a prisoner or inmate ever again. So I made my mind up. But that moment where I made my mind up, it was the accumulative effects of all the studying, reading, and self-introspection that I've done. And it just so happened that during my last term of incarceration, it matured into a, a point of I had enough. And so so one, I began day, to, one day did you just have that shift, that paradigm shift that you said it no came, more? It, it came over time. But I believe that true re-entry and rehabilitation starts the moment that the handcuffs are put on you. Can you explain that? You have to make your mind up. The first two times that I've been incarcerated, I hadn't decided to stop. I still I knew what I was going to do. But the third time, I had had enough. The difference between the first three times that I was incarcerated compared to the last time, I didn't talk about crime. I didn't talk about what I was going to do. I had learned that I had a mind. 
I learned that I had a knack for business. I learned that I was able to articulate myself and communicate with people. I began to read books about business and self-empowerment. And I met, again, some men along the way who had helped me cultivate that thought process, who told me about some of the things that they were doing in the streets. And I said, wow, if this guy can do it, I can do it too. And one step and one day at a time, that urge and that desire to make life, to live life on life turns got stronger and stronger and stronger. I lost a taste to live outside the law. I understand that you have been giving back, basically, trying to help. I don't want to use an overused term of at-risk youth, but trying to help those who might have followed a, uh, a career to upstate. You're trying to help them to stay out of jail. Absolutely. How are you doing that? Uh, I decided to utilize my experiences and my story to help reach others. Do you go into the schools? Do you go into the jails? What do you do? When I came home after this last term of incarceration, I became employed by the DA's office via a program called CODA, which stands for Council of Thought and Action. This is a re-entry-based program uh, which employed ex-offenders who had a certain uh, level of respect and influence in the surrounding community of Hempstead, Freeport, Roseville, etc. And so they used us uh, to go back into the school district to speak and run interventions with at-risk youth. So we would use our stories and our experiences to try to educate them about the lifestyle that they were either beginning to live or heading into. And what, what is your experience or feeling about that program? Was it effective? It's a beautiful program. But like all programs that deal with at-risk youth, I have a simple theory. And the theory is called the theory of chocolate ice cream. It could be vanilla, it could be banana, it could be whatever. But once you taste chocolate ice cream, once you taste your favorite ice cream and you fall in love with it, no matter what you do, even if the doctor says, Mr. Tyson, if you have one more scoop of ice cream, you might die from diabetes. If you love ice cream, you still might take a chance and have another scoop. It's the same thing with these kids in the streets. Once they get a taste of street life, living outside the law, making instant money, it's hard to get that taste out of their mouth until it runs through their system. You know that there's been a great deal of discussion in this state about decriminalization of marijuana. Yes. Do you think that if the state would decriminalize recreational marijuana, that that would help to deter some of this youth from street life? Or would it not affect? I'm not sure. I'm Are we talking about selling cocaine, heroin, other things, or mainly marijuana? For kids? For kids. It depends on what neighborhood they're in. Everything is in the neighborhood. Everything's Coke, available. Dope, crack, weed, guns, robbery, poor, low income areas. Crime is rampant. People are hungry. People are starving. People lack opportunities. What resources. About, what about educational opportunities? Why why not? How can choose? a kid how can a kid study in school if he's hungry? This is this is what I come to realize. I come to realize why I used to act out in school. It's hard to focus when you didn't eat breakfast. And we might minimize that and say, well, you can't blame that. But just think about it. A 13, 14-year-old kid who's hungry. He didn't eat breakfast because his mother or father was, well, is, is not present or don't have the resources to, to really feed them the way they should be fed. And so you're going to school and you're trying your best to cope, but you're hungry. You're a child. But after school, your friends are outside. And you're going to hang with your friends and they're still in cell phones. Or they're selling a little weed. Why are they doing these things? Because these are things that are going to give them 
instant gratification. They know that if they sell a little bit of weed, they're going to make some money because everybody smokes weed. They know that if they steal a cell phone, they can sell that cell phone for about $100. And what does that mean? They can feed themselves. They'll so buy that's, the what, that's what they're using the money for, to feed themselves and the family. Absolutely. It's, it's not buying other cell phones. You're, you're saying that we're that, talking about That's a residual needs. effect. That's going to come, of course. But we're oh, starting at basic needs. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, because, you know, you can't pick where you're born. You can't pick where you're born. If you're born there, you're not. These kids are not stronger than their environment. And then some people are selling drugs and doing very well. So these kids see these guys or these girls, they don't have a job. They're outside all day. They're having fun. They're driving nice cars. These kids' undeveloped minds are no match for these visuals. In these visuals, they see an escape from their continuous pain. So that stuff we're talking about, listen, you can't join gangs. You got to do the good in school. They know logically what we're saying is correct, but we're not appealing to their lower base desires. Tell us a little bit about what you've been doing since you've been out, how you're making your money legally, <laughs> and we're very interested to hear. Please. Well, my, my, uh, my occupation, my, my job, if you will, I'm a barber by trade. Uh, I'm also a publisher, but I'm a barber by trade. And that's in Baldwin. We have your contact information in the show notes for anyone looking for a great barber. Yes. Definitely. Um, I'm a private barber. I don't work in the traditional barber, but I spent many years working in the barber shop. I began cutting hair at the age of 13. I used to hang out in the barbershop all day and watch the barbers. Then they would let me experiment. And then I began taking what they taught me and what I learned in the barbershop, and I would cut my friends. And you're licensed, right? By New York State? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And let's talk. I'm I'm a master barber. I've been cutting hair for more than 20 years. Now talk about uh, your magazine. Yes. And how did you get involved with it? Tell us the name. and uh, Urban Life News Magazine. And who is your... You. Everyone. <laughs> Urban Life is who, Urban Life. Who We're, is your projected reader? My, my readership, and professionally, I, I shouldn't be saying this, but my readership is, is diverse. Urban Life News Magazine, it represents the many facets of urban life. Uh, we have law, community, fashion, music, entertainment, And all this is designed to present information for people who have issues with the criminal justice system. We utilize hip-hop and the culture of hip-hop to draw our listening, our our readership into the fold. But our whole goal is to provide information and resources for people who are formerly incarcerated, are presently incarcerated, and their family and friends who need information on how to, to support one that's incarcerated. Very good. I know that uh, the Roosevelt Library has purchased a subscription because I was in that library and I saw your magazine there. We <laughs> also have in our show notes information if you want to subscribe to the magazine. Let's also talk about your apparel line. Paperwork good. Paperwork good is uh, it just means integrity. Uh, when you enter the federal correctional facility, uh, the other inmates want to see your paperwork. Your paperwork is your sentencing, otherwise known as your judgment and commitment. What happened in your case? Because before this population will accept you, they got to know that you're not a snitch. You're not an informant. Because if you are an informant, nobody in the federal system will talk to you. You'll be isolated. And they may give you 30 days to show your paperwork. And if after 30 days you don't have your paperwork... They're going to send you out to jail. Either they'll give you an opportunity to volunteer to leave or they'll send you out violently. Let me go back to the clothing for a moment. What kinds of clothing are you marketing? 
T-shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies, sweatpants, and, we'll and, have, and hats. And we'll have that contact information but in the, the paper, show notes But as the well. paperwork came from the federal experience. But it's just a way to bring back integrity. You don't have to have been to prison to have good paperwork. I'm going to give you a quick example. We're all old women working in a post office. And in the post office, we've, amongst ourselves, figured out a way to process the mail quicker. But it's not necessarily according to the policies and procedures that the post office taught us. We're not breaking the law, but we are saving time. So now you got one blabbermouth old lady who goes to the supervisor. <laughs> <laughs> one blabbermouth old lady who goes to the supervisor and she tells about our system. Her paperwork is no good. She's a turncoat. We was getting out of work early. Now she's making us stay till 7 o'clock. We were leaving at 6. She's a snitch. She's a snitch. So we won't name names here, but it's not good to be a snitch, I understand. Well, no. Not also good to withhold information that could save somebody's life as well or stop somebody from getting hurt. But in terms of a street culture, they say that there's no honor amongst thieves, but there has to be honor among thieves because everybody's dangerous. Honor is the thing that keeps us in check. It's, it's, a, it's a sense of law. It's a misrepresentation. Oh, there's no honor amongst thieves. On a low level, there is. Is it any honor? Right? On the, on the guy that's on the corner or the girl that's on the corner doing low-level crime, there's no honor. They don't care. But as you mature and you grow and you reach higher and higher levels, you begin to realize that law and honor governs everything. I just want to ask you, how can you advise our listeners who have been released from prison and hope to successfully re-enter society? Does it get easier after any specific period of time? Or which steps can someone take to increase his or her chances of not falling back into the same pattern and how to stay out of jail? One step at a time. There's a question, how do you, how do you eat an elephant? And the answer is one bite at a time. There's another saying, oh, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. You have to live day by day, moment by moment, and battle by battle. But ultimately, you have to be relentless. You can't take no for an answer, especially in terms of gaining employment. And you can't be afraid to recreate yourself. You can't be afraid to go back to school, to learn a trade, especially if you've been in prison for more than a year or two. Society is moving fast and at an alarming rate. What was okay five years ago is not okay anymore. Skills that were uh, applicable in the work market a year ago is, isn't applicable anymore. L let me ask you, how important is family support? Major. You need a support network. And I'm glad you asked that question. That is one of the things that if you don't have a support network, you need to work to cultivate one because your support network is going to tell you when you're falling off course. They're going to support you through rough moments. There's going to be a lot of things internally that you're going to experience that you're going to need to speak with somebody about to help make sense of it. Mm -hmm. During my time, I've been home now for about nine years. There was a moment within this nine years that I believe I suffered a little bit of depression because things were not materializing as I had envisioned them in my mind when I was in prison. But I didn't account for how much the world would have changed while I was away. And I just was fortunate to make it through. 
And the way that I knew I was in a mild depression when I began going back around those men and women who were on fire. And I said, wow, I used to be on fire like that. And I realized from introspection that instead of progressing, my main concern had become just to stay out of prison. And so then I, be, I got caught up in the monotony of everyday life. Go to work, cut some hair, talk to some kids, do something positive, go home. But I wasn't feeding my desire to do better, to run a business, to just live and enjoy everyday life. I had achieved my foundational goal, which was to stay out of prison. Now, what will I do to chase my aspirations? That is a wonderful statement. I want to thank you so much, Damar, for being honest with us and telling our listeners all about your experiences and how you've turned your life around. I give you much credit and keep going with it. And I hope I wish you much success. And that's it for our 15th episode. Thank you, Demar Tyson, for coming on the podcast today. I look forward maybe to having you back another time, if you're willing. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And to our listeners, be sure to download this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you are there, we would greatly appreciate your rating us with a review that might start. I just heard on the Long Island Law Podcast that the Wyandanch High School football team officially started practicing for games after the Suffolk County Police Department gave the school district $150,000 as part of a state grant intended to fight gangs. In addition, the New York Jets donated $25,000 to the football program. Private donations from businesses and individuals came up with the additional required $175,000. This is after voters in that school district twice rejected proposals and budgets which would have raised taxes and kept after school programs going in that school district. While there is much controversy concerning the safety and injuries sustained due to football games, there is no doubt that it is better for teenagers to be engaged after school than to be on the streets. The LI Law Podcast is your source for local tips which educate and entertain. Thanks for listening.